Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. What's a J-Gent? It's like a Bernie bro, but for Jay Inslee. <laughs> <laughs> the J-Gents, we're out there. We're good at hashtags and everything. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. We're here with Sarah Cliff and Jane Coaston. And we're going to talk a little bit about the 2020 field and particularly about the relationship of the 2020 field to the weeds. Not <laughs> not to the weeds podcast per se, but to the, the spiritual plane of weedsiness. And I guess, I, I guess this is loosely prompted by the fact that Beto O'Rourke Hopped into the presidential race. Hopped up onto a counter. He, he, the counter he, that is the 2020. He leapt onto the table, throwing his metaphorical hat in the ring. And an immediate criticism that he took was that he was a little vague on policy. In general, that he had, I, I think Sarah was in the midst of sort of the, the reporting eye of the storm, right? But like an important part, I guess, of the 2020 primary is that whenever anybody gets in, because they're not Bernie Sanders, they are pelted with a bunch of demands that they explicitly endorse the very unpopular aspects of Bernie's Medicare for All bill that Bernie himself does not ever talk about. And then when they don't, they get they get criticized. And, and Beto did a real... I don't know what exactly you would call it, <laughs> a kind of weird Houdini act on this topic. Yeah, yeah. So I think we want to talk more broadly about, like, the relationship between the 2020 field and policy. But, you know, healthcare is always an interesting lens to look at literally anything through, as is always my view. And I think, you know, what you see with Beto is Im- immediately he gets in. And there's this question of, like, what does this guy think about a lot of things? What does he think about healthcare? And I started just kind of looking through, like, well, what has he said about healthcare? over the past few years. And it's really kind of like all over the place in like the in like a liberal, like he's not talking about repealing Obamacare, but in terms of like, what does Beto like think we should do to our healthcare system? But I do think this is important. When when we say he's all over the place, he's actually not all over the place, right? He's in a sort of narrow coordinate plane Occupying a variety of he different He is all over the, the different positions you see staked out by Democrats in the health policy right. space. So he's not like the guy like, you know, the Texas Republican who's saying, no, 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 I'm going to appeal to people by repealing the Affordable Care Act. So sure, like all over the place is a, is a certain box of policies, but it's a box of policies that's becoming like a very defining part of the primary. Right. And I think it raises so, – so I think of it as very interesting. Matt and I were having a version of this conversation – earlier in our office about, you know, to think at the contrast between a candidate like Beto and a candidate like Elizabeth Warren, because I think they are quite different. They might not actually be that different in what they believe at the end of the day, but they're quite different in like how they are approaching, you know, being a candidate. So Elizabeth Warren is running like by far the most policy heavy candidate I have ever seen, especially this early in a race where there's just like constant white papers. There's like her child care plan. There's her plan to have the government make generic drugs. There's her plan to break up the big tech companies for like a policy podcast. It's like you could do constant episodes about the various different Elizabeth Warren plans that have been rolled out. And again, it's it's March. You know, we're so early in this primary So on the one hand, you have a very policy-heavy candidate like Warren. I think at the other end of the spectrum, you have a very policy-light candidate. Um, I don't know if you guys will dispute my characterization, but I I see Beto as like a policy-light candidate, a guy who like generally is in the mix of like different Democratic policies. But if you go to his website, you're not going to find certain white papers. You're not going to find—I don't really see like any sort of policy— innovation happening from his campaign. Like, if you look at Warren, she has this new child care plan that really is a unique policy she's put out. Beto, in the health care thing, he ended up just endorsing a plan that some House reps have put out, this Medicare for America 
plan that you can find an excellent explainer about from my colleague Dylan on Vox. So he is not someone who is coming up with his own new policy ideas. And I would say at this early stage of the candidate. And I think it's an interesting discussion of like, does that matter? What does having someone like Warren or having someone like Beto with these two different camps, does that tell us anything about what type of president we'd be electing? So I think that's something that is a particularly unique challenge for Beto is that Beto works kind of initially came to national prominence because he was running in a Senate race against Ted Cruz. It, his unlikability has been a matter of some discussion, even among conservatives who would like respect him and think of him as being someone who is very reliable on specific issues. But, you know, this is someone who, when he first got married, just stockpiled cans of soup. And then when his wife tried to get rid of the cans of soup, he just rebought stock piles of soup. This is who Ted Cruz is. But when you're Beto O'Rourke, when you are positioned against Ted Cruz, you instantly become in the eyes of the national electorate, not so much Texas Democrats. I think Texas Democrats had some specific qualms with Beto's candidacy, which they talked about both during the race and afterwards. But nationally, when you are putting someone in contrast with Ted Cruz, that person will automatically look more effective and a better kind of conduit for liberalism writ large. But now Beto is competing against a lot of other Democrats and a lot of other Democrats like Elizabeth Warren, whose entire brand is having done the reading. It'll be interesting to see whether or not that's a real challenge, though, because I feel as if that because Beto already has so much attention, that there's a sense that the fact that the attention is not on policy, but on like who he is and more more importantly, what can be projected upon him by other people. I think that that'll be interesting to see how that kind of shifts and turns as the race goes on. So I want to draw like 90 distinctions here that okay. I think are relevant, right? Because I do think that, that there are a whole bunch of ways in which Warren and, and O'Rourke strike me as like at opposite ends of the spectrum. And these are all different things that people can be talking about when they talk about like what's the policy content of Beto, right? And one is as a kind of person, are you a so to speak, weedsy person, right? And that's a quality that it, it, Beto does not seem to be. Warren is, but also Hillary Clinton was. A person who would be excited to talk about the granular details of their kinds of ideas, right? And uh, Pete Buttigieg also seems to have that quality. I'm not sure that Cory Booker does, right? Or that Kamala Harris necessarily does. Then another question is, policy innovation. And that's one where Harris and Booker do have, like Warren, right? Part of them running for president was that they worked with people and they put out signature policy initiatives, right? And the point of that wasn't that Kamala Harris is personally a tax policy expert whose passion in life is the details of how the earned income tax credit works. Like, because like we know biographically, she's a prosecutor, right? She was a prosecutor. She was San Francisco attorney general. She was California attorney general. She actually has relatively little background in tax policy, but she wanted to stake a claim to this idea, and that was a lift act, right? And now Warren has like 12 signature initiatives, and Beto also has none. But those are different things, right? Like, is the candidate dispositionally a dive into the details of policy person? Because Bernie Sanders, for example, is also not a like wonky, weedsy person. But Bernie is, and Warren also is, and Beto isn't, like an ideologue, right, whose like thing is to say, I think a really important aspect of American politics is picking intra-party factional fights. Right. Like that's something Ted Cruz thinks. Right. right. And it's one of the things that made him vulnerable because like Ted Cruz's whole thing, at least until he got into a tough reelection campaign, was like, I'm not here to just say we're all Republicans. We're all on the same right. team. I'm here to tell you that the true meaning of conservatism, it faces constant betrayal from other Republicans. And right. I am the steward of the true faith. And like that's Bernie Sanders. And it's also Elizabeth Warren. And so Bitter's not that either. Right. But it's like a it's like a 20 fold contrast. And I think some of those things matter and others of them don't. One question is like, are we genuinely uncertain like what kind of policy course Better O'Rourke would set? And to me, the answer is no, right? Like 
to the extent that he got complaints from the left, it's not because it's actually vague or unclear. It's because it's like it's all too clear. Right. That like Beto exists as a national phenomenon largely because of Pod Save America. Um, he got the kind of implicit blessing of Barack Obama personally. He has a sort of Obama-esque rhetorical style. He's like a House member. So he doesn't have some huge team of people who even could bring into the White House. And so like what Beto work stands for policy-wise is like getting the band back together. And the Bernie people don't like that, not because they're like, oh, I don't even know what this guy believes in. It's because they know exactly what he believes in. And it's not what they believe in, which is different from me saying that, like, on foreign policy, like, I genuinely don't know what better work thinks because different Democrats just do different stuff. And, like, there's a lot of divisiveness and none of them have said anything about it. So I disagree with you here in the health, particularly in the healthcare space. Right. I do not know what Beto wants on healthcare, and I think that will actually matter if there is a Democrat elected to the White House in twenty twenty. How is it going to matter? How is it going to matter? I mean, it's going to. It feels so familiar from like. Trump getting elected in 2016, I didn't really know what he thought that it should be the replacement plan. And it was a total clusterfuck because there were all these replacement plans swirling around. There wasn't really buy-in on any of them. There wasn't clear leadership from, you know, the White House of, okay, this is the one we want to do. They were kind of like in the mix, but not really leading that. And I think, you know, if I look back at 2016, you know, the reason I don't think they were able to repeal and replace Obamacare is there never was like a clear like, okay, like here's Here's the plan. Um, I think it's fair to – and when I look at Beto's history, it, it seems like he is really vacillating between like a lot of different health options on the left. And they are very different options. Like there's a huge difference between like whether you're going to go all in on Medicare for all or if you're going to say like, OK, like let's push for a public option. Those are some pretty – Different healthcare systems and some different and and I want to know which one he's well, he's they, behind. They're different systems, but are they different political programs? Like, because here's the thing, right? I think sometimes Bernie, to both like his fans and his critics, is discussed as if this is a guy who hasn't been in the United States Congress for all this time, and like we know how Bernie Sanders operates as a political actor on healthcare policy. And it is exactly the same as how Jan Schakowsky and Beto O'Rourke and everybody else, like not in a bad way, right? But like this is not, he didn't like try to blow up the ACA because his true vision was single payer. It's like the committees write these bills. They have to talk to the marginal senators. They got to get their CBO scores. And like, I don't see it. Like, I don't know. I feel like, like I see it. For, like when you are president, like, you're going to have to decide, like, what it is you want to throw your weight behind, right? Like, and President Obama, like, chose a very centrist health care plan. And, you know, he did that because he felt like that is what he could pass at that particular moment. And I think that's a key key decision in terms of, like, what policy gets passed, in terms of if anything gets passed. Um, you know, I would want to know if he just doesn't think, like, health care is worth Pursuing, which is like a decent, yes, you know, which is a position you could hold in this. I don't know. I think it matters a lot. And I think if we look at like the Trump presidency as a lesson, like that's a president who came in like with no clear policy views at all. And it's kind of like floundered to get anything done. But it, what what if in, in a weird way, I think that the Trump presidency has been somewhat instructive because I think, you know, Trump had this whole health care for everyone thing, which meant nothing and resulted in nothing. And it didn't matter. Yeah. Well, let's take a break. Let's let's go back into this. Support for the weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. 
They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. I guess one way you could look at the Trump question, right, is like I would say that Trump's campaign signaled to us that Donald Trump did not have the capacity to like work well with policy development teams. And then what we've seen from Trump's administration is that To the extent that Trump has ideas that the conservative movement agrees with, you know, the basic movement institutions continue to function and they do conservative stuff and you can like it or not like it. I don't like it. But it's not like because Donald Trump isn't a weedsy policy thinker, he's been unable to make air pollution regulations less strict. Like the EPA has that rulemaking authority. He works with Heritage to get the guys in and like there it goes. Where Trump has failed – it seems to me as a president due to his policy weakness is that he as a candidate seemed to promise innovation right like he said that he was going to somehow deliver healthcare for everybody he said that he was going to go after hedge fund managers special tax privileges he said he was going to have an infrastructure plan right and so those were things that the conservative movement didn't want to do And to swim against the tide like that, right, to govern a little bit against the main currents of your party, that's really challenging. And you would really need a strong intellectual basis to go do that, right? And if we had somebody in the field, right, if we had um, Andrew Cuomo, right, a relatively centrist Democrat who's also been the governor of a large state. Now, if he was telling me that, like, he as president was going to pursue some things that are not normal Democratic Party priorities, I would take him very seriously, right? Not because I'd, like, love Andrew Cuomo, but because, like, being the governor of New York State is an objectively challenging job. And we know that, like, he has done the job and won re-election and he has a staff and he might actually be able to do it, whereas Trump was, like, a joker, right? Right. But nobody in the Democratic field is promising anything like that. So it doesn't just seem – and I don't want to be too disparaging about this, right? Like I host this podcast. I really enjoy like weedsy policy discussions. Elizabeth Warren is definitely the person in the field who I would most want to have a beer with. You know, and like talk to her about co-determination in Germany and like why she has a 40 percent threshold rather than Germans 50 percent threshold. And did she look at Austria and like, you know, what does she think about works councils versus board representation? Like, I think that stuff is really, really interesting. But like as a citizen, it doesn't seem that important to me unless you had a candidate who was saying they wanted to go outside the basic nexus of Uh, progressive ideology and basic party institutions, it just seems like, you know, we're going to get the same the same kind of results from all these people. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I would toss in here is that we're still pretty early. So like if you look at and one of the things that I think is going on is that we have an especially policy heavy primary because we have all these senators in the mix. So I think if you look at like all the people who are who you kind of put on your policy innovator list, I think the thing they 
all have in common is the fact they are senators and they have these and what do senators do? They come up with new policies and they try and pass them and often they don't pass, but they reintroduce them and they reintroduce them. And so you've definitely seen more policymaking from those folks, you know, as they get ready to throw their hats in the 2020 ring. But I think I'm someone who I am more valuing of like the policies that are being put out. Like I want to see those from candidates. I do think they matter in sketching out like what type of things a potential president would support. At the same time, you know, I do see that it is early in this election and that like maybe Beto will have his policy shop stood up. Like maybe there's people who work at the Center for American Progress who are going to be like Beto campaign people within a few months and are going to be helping like churn out those white papers. But I don't know. I think I value and obviously like, you know, I have a bias here as a host of a podcast called The Weeds. But I think it tells you something when people are doing the policy innovation, because I think it gives you a signal to, like, what their priorities are going to be as a president. Like, I think you point out Kamala Harris, you know, putting in the work to do this lift act. You know, this isn't about getting into the teeny tiny details of how it works. It is her innovating on a particular policy area and saying, you know, this is something that would be important to me. And I think that gives you a signal that I would like to see from candidates of, you know, what it is they are planning to focus on should they be elected. Yeah, I want those signals. I want those conversations. I just feel as if that, I don't know, I just can't get over how early it is in this primary. And we're having this conversation. And Trump didn't declare his entrance into 2016 candidacy until like several months from now at this point in 2015. This campaign is so long. No, it's so long. And I almost I'm like, I don't know if this is particularly helpful for people who are attempting to like make decisions or understand fully like what each candidate stands for when there's very much of a sense that like, that the sparring among Democrats, it, it's is that challenging or is that good for Democrats in general? I think that, see, Sarah, you keep going back to priorities, which I agree is really important, right? And when we had the opportunity to talk to a couple of presidential candidates uh, down, down in Austin, right? I mean, I, we asked Julian Castro very squarely, like, what are your priorities going to be? And he said it was a very important answer, right? He said that the number one thing was going to be to take another bite at the healthcare apple. And that after that, he thought they had to do the unfinished business of immigration reform. And it was clear that, you know, even though he's said a million other things, that like those were his top priorities. And like that was like a good, interesting answer. And Pete Buttigieg indicated that, like, he really wanted to push on the sort of democracy political reform agenda and try to elevate that a little bit, right? And that, I thought, was a revealing, important answer. Um, And in a way, like Warren's thing, right, it reminds me, there's like a military adage that, like, if you defend everywhere, you're defending nowhere, right? It's like she has so many policy ideas that are so ambitious that I saw her uh, down there do do an event with um, Anand uh, Giridas, and he, you know, they talked for 90 minutes, and she, like, didn't mention, like, half of her big things because, like, she has so— so many, which again, like, is very appealing to me as like a generalist hot take slinger, but it doesn't actually give you like a clear sense of like what is the governance going to be like. It would be interesting to hear from people, although I don't expect them to do it this early or necessarily ever, like some really, really, really weedsy boring stuff, right? Like, do you know a lawyer who has given you a clever idea for something the FTC could go do, right? You know, because that stuff does matter around the margin, right? It's like, how do you figure out what powers the president has and how do you kind of wield them? But I think all the time about the 2008 primary, right, in which there were like all these takes from the healthcare people about how bad it was that Obama kept slagging on Hillary's individual mandate Um, because, you know, the individual mandate, like it wasn't popular, but it was necessary to make the whole thing work. And particularly given how necessary and how unpopular it was, there'd be no way to get it done unless you had a strong public mandate for it. But like Obama beat Hillary. They passed the law that had the mandate in it. Then the mandate got repealed. So it turned out to like not be true that Obama wasn't for the mandate, to not be true that there was no way to get the mandate done without a specific electoral uh, agenda behind it. Also not true that the mandate was necessary to make the law work. And 
I don't know, man. Like, have we have we learned anything as a policy journalism community from like the last big flashpoint on this topic? Well, let me put that back. So, what do you when like you look at these candidates then, or when voters look at that? Like, how does Matt Iglesias evaluate candidates or think? think voters should because usually you think like right you look at what they believe you make decisions based on that yeah i guess i mean i just feel like i do what everybody does and like i just decide on the basis of hazy identity concerns (laughs) i mean and i feel i feel a little bit torn in multiple directions um no but you look you could have you just don't but you could have a bigger clash of visions on the table, right? Like David Leonhardt wrote a column the other day saying that he thought Democrats had erred by moving left on immigration from where Obama was and that actually Democrats should become immigration restrictionists. Um, you know, not huge restrictionists, but he he endorsed David Frum's view on this. Like he said, and somebody could say that, right? There's like 19 people in the field. It would not be totally out of bounds for someone to say we should reposition to the right on this issue. And then we could have an argument, right, not about the specifics of immigration policy, but about the directionality of it. You could have somebody say, um, stand up for the old Obama view that we have to make a serious priority about reducing the long-term budget deficit, including cuts to entitlement programs. But like nobody in the field is saying that, right? And like these would be interesting debates. And if we were having those debates... I would make my mind up based on who I agreed with on them. But we're instead having really weird nitpicky debates in a, I don't know, like just a kind of odd way. Like, remember when, Sarah, like this is not used to be like an out of bounds thing to say in the Democratic Party, that the typical American overconsumes healthcare services and that we need to try to induce them to consume fewer healthcare services by increasing out of pocket healthcare costs. That was like a mainstream view inside the Democratic Party, which would make for a really productive contrast with Bernie Sanders' view that not only is it a crisis that they're uninsured Americans, but that the insured majority are perilously underinsured and need much, much more robust coverage via Medicare for all, because then I wouldn't be looking at, say, like Jim Cooper and Bernie Sanders arguing about that and rolling my eyes, being like, well, it's all going to come down to the Senate. Because actually, like, which direction do you try to push the system is makes a big deal. But like, if everybody thinks we need to expand insurance by increasing the public sector role and imposing more price controls, then like that, that's consensus to me. I mean, that's like all the more reason, like why I want to because I mean, like what you're articulating there is like policy does matter. Like yes. if you had a candidate who was expressing something, you know, that was in contrast with the other candidates and like, I don't know, maybe Beto has some of those views. Like, I just want to know what it is that he is thinking about these things and, you know, tracing through his healthcare record. Most recently, he has, he's endorsed kind of a public option type idea. And maybe that is like where he is going to land, but I think it would be helpful to like have yeah. a sense of like what he as a candidate thinks about this, thinks about other issues, to see if there is that kind of intra-party conflict. Or if not, I think I think you're right. That is a field where it is very crowded with people and like less crowded with like policy differences among those people. But you you can't even know that if you don't like have a sense of like what are yeah. the things that I mean, are better should come on the there. weeds, right? He probably should. That's, you know, after he finishes with Pod Save, that's that's how, that's stop. that's how you prove yourself. I mean, it's easy, it's easy to go on Pod Save America and dunk on Trump, um, but you know, you gotta you gotta get in here at a certain point and like like delve into it. But like, we don't. This is not really a foreign policy show. But it seems to me that in the realm of foreign policy, you are much less objectively constrained by Congress. People join politics for certain kinds of reasons, and I would say relatively few people get into politics because of their views on. Foreign policy. But also, this is in practice a huge amount of what the president Mm -hmm. deals with. Like a lot of the shit on your desk has to do with national security policy. And when you just like scan the headlines, right, it's like what crazy blowups are happening. A lot of them also have to do with foreign and national security policy. The bar is like so low to make a contribution to that debate. I I think most of the candidates have literally said nothing on this subject. Uh, Warren gave a big speech about foreign policy a couple months ago that was interesting. She like billed it as foreign policy. 
But it like really zoomed in to like her stuff about middle class incomes and like betrayal by multinational corporations. Uh, and I, I didn't really agree with it. But, you know, it's interesting, but also not like the main issue. Right. Like, should we have an extended military presence in the Middle East or should we not like that? That seems like a good question. A lot of people I know disagree about that. Yeah. No, I mean, it seems like a very domestic policy. I mean, again, like I come back to like what Jane was saying. Like I was going to say, it's been a pretty domestic policy heavy primary that we've been having for a few months and that will continue yes. for the rest of our lives. Yes. Or another. I mean, it's, it's really fun to be essentially rehashing 2016 while beginning to prehash 2020 as we will do for the rest of our natural lives. Exactly. But I feel like that kind of like, Tells me, you know, certain things about like where the energies of a democratic presidency would be focused. And I think it is in tension with the fact there's a lot more you could do on the foreign policy front. You know, I think it's fair to expect that this president is going to be coming into divided government one way or another. So you're not going mm-hmm. to see these like ambitious child care policies or the LIFT Act or Medicare for all. Like none of those at the end of the day are really becoming law in this Super first likely, right. In this first term of a presidency. But I think it, I don't know, it's interesting. It kind of speaks to, you know, where the Democratic Party is in a way that's very different from Republicans, where there's so much focus on domestic economic policy right now. Like when you look at like what they're putting their energies to, it is very much in that space. And But but to me, I think that reflects like candidates want a little bit perversely. It's like they want to talk about the issues that they don't disagree about. Sure. Whereas it would be more informative to kind of get at this. And, and you know, this is where Sanders has dabbled in, in this area, right, in saying that, like, it's not just that Trump does bad tweets, but that there is a global access of authoritarianism, that he lumps together Trump, Putin, America's traditional Persian Gulf allies. He's even named Bibi Netanyahu and and um, Bolsonaro in Brazil as part of this, right? And that is not a detailed framework for American foreign policy, but it is a broad outline of a change in approach from Trump that would not simply restore the Obama approach, but try to map out a new kind of thing, right? And what would that amount to exactly? I don't really know. It seems like in its details, it has some implications for Israel, some implications for aid. And I'm not seeing anyone else like engaging with that subject. And there was a, I I forget if you guys were here, but there were some, some of the, the Democrats like top national security guys came into the office a couple months ago. And they, like, purported that there was total unity of vision within the party. And then somebody mentioned Israel and, like, it melted <laughs> down immediately. But it's like, why would you get into that at this point? Oh, like, no, it doesn't Matt make Iglesias sense. Would like to, but, like, that's, like, at the start of a primary before, like, there's a debate. Like, it's just yeah. like there's no motivation to show your – Cards yeah, I'm just saying if we right as podcast hosts are going to stir some shit up, I don't <laughs> think it should be about like endlessly dotting the T's on how your public option works. I would like to endlessly dot some T's on public <laughs> options. <laughs> well, that's fine. You know, if that's if that's your thing um, here, wait, let, let's take a second break. And then I want to I want to try to try to bring this bring this back down to earth. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. 
but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. One way in which the current situation feels very different to me than the 2008 primary or even than the 2016 Republican primary is that at the end of the day, right, the reason the whole Obama-Hillary spat about the mandate wound up not amounting to that much is that there was a strong process in Congress around healthcare policy that wound up really driving things. And what's interesting to me is that I don't think that we see that now. The the sort of gesture Beto made toward, I like this bill that some House Democrats have, was like indicative of, I think, how a more functional system would work, but not how our system is actually working. Like, it doesn't seem to me that House Democrats are saying right now, look, we have 18,000 presidential candidates. We have no idea which one of them will win. We know that most of them seem interested in health policy and seem interested in, like, public options. So we now need to decide, like, what's going to happen. Instead, House Democrats are like, I don't know what they're doing. They're arguing about Ilhan Omar. No, they're holding the first ever Medicare for All hearings this year. Are they? Who, what, what's going to happen at the hearings? Um, no, those are things that um, Jayapal secured. So they have not been scheduled yet. They probably won't be late till later this year. But they, I think you see, I mean, one of the things that does feel a little familiar is you see this like laying of a groundwork for creating legislation that does feel familiar to me to like the 2008 era, you know, I think it's a longer tale because I think we're preparing for a presidency that will be in divided government. The odds of Democrats taking the Senate in 2020 are quite low. So you have this like very long tail preparation process where the earliest you could do a program like that probably isn't going to be until 2024. But I think in between, you know, the now the now and then, one of the key things that has to happen is actually like figuring out like, okay, like, what is it that we support? And like, what is the type of healthcare plan, the type of childcare plan, whatever, whatever you decide your priority is, you need that kind of pre-legislating phase where you deal with all those weedsy questions and get pretty close to consensus in order to actually move something when you are in a position to like have enough political power to do so. And, you know, I think, you know, I come back to the example example of Obamacare repeal where they never did that groundwork. Like they weren't coalescing around a plan. Right. That, and because that was never the point. It's interesting how I, I think about this a lot following the right, that the idea of Obamacare repeal, that was the lone idea. The whole repeal and replace, they never got to the replace. Right. And there has been, um, there was actually an interesting piece in uh, the Washington Examiner that actually re- this uh, last two weeks that compared it to kind of Brexit of this idea of like, you have a thing, but you have no plan for what actually happens if the thing takes place because you've been using the thing as a political cudgel this whole time. But that's also because they were lying. (laughs) The big problem with Brexit, right, is that like the claim that the Brexiters made was that being in the European Union not only involved a level of immigration that was unpopular with many British people, but was a net cost to the British economy. And the reality was the opposite, that being in the European Union forced the UK to accept uh, a certain open labor market that was not popular domestically, but was a net benefit 
to the UK economy. Right. And so that there was a trade-off that they were allowed to leave and cut back on migration, but that it would be costly to do so. And the Brexit people, they just they just lied about that, which is why they became the dog that caught the car. And it was the same with healthcare, right? Like Republicans campaign against Obamacare was based on representing to people that they were going to be able to get them better healthcare plans. When it's not that they never they didn't like do the work to write such a plan, it didn't actually reflect what conservative health policy is, right? Like the conservative health wonks just did not agree that the problem with Obamacare was that deductibles were too high. It was a lie, right? And so then when they won, they had to reconcile what they had promised with their actual agenda, and they and they couldn't, right? Republicans are a little hazy on what exactly it is they want to do about abortion policy when the courts start letting them ban abortions, but they don't, like, struggle to come up with ideas, right? Like, they are pretty honest about the fact that their view on abortion is that it's bad, and like they consistently, when given room by courts, come up with new things they can try, right? They're very productive. They're not like dullards who are unable to come up with these things, even though they don't have a like fully agreed upon in advance, like here's our 12-step program to get Roe v. Wade overturned and then ban abortions nationally. It's like they just keep doing it because it's not a bait and switch, right? And the reason they couldn't get it done on, on healthcare, it seems to me, is that they were they were bullshitting. Um, there's maybe a little bullshit in the Democrats' healthcare rhetoric, but like it's pretty clear that they're all moving towards something that involves a bigger public sector role. And like exactly how big, exactly how does it work? You know, I mean, that's hard to say. Um, but it's like the work that keeps not getting done is for the full-scale Medicare for all people deciding what kind of taxes they want to raise. But like we're now into like year how many it is of Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign, and he keeps not doing that. But, like, that's not really because he hasn't had enough time. No, but I think that's kind of like the version of Obamacare repeal, right? Like, it's just a thing you don't really want to deal with because it's a thing that is hard. And it's yeah. a thing that's going to make people angry. I mean, I think that is something you could hope I would like to see come out, like, through this elongated primary process and I don't think it's going to be like like similar to foreign policy. I don't think it's like the thing like candidates are going to want to talk about. Like it's not like you go out there like being like, okay, here's how I'm financing my Medicare for All plan and here's these big tax increases that it's going to require. But I think hopefully like that would be a clarifying discussion I would hope to hear because I think that is one where you would actually see some policy difference between different candidates. I don't know. Does it – does it matter, like, at the end of the day? I don't know if all this will change. You know, if you end up electing one of these people to the office, like, I don't think anyone's going to remember the answer they gave on Medicare for all pay-fors and be like, but you said, you know, just like the individual mandate. Like, things change. And that's, like, the place, I don't know, like, that's where we started this conversation. And how much should I wait the, like, total lack of policy substance from Beto? And, like, the podcast host and, like, Weeds hosted me. Waits it a lot. Like, like, mm -hmm. why would you elect someone who has, like, put out zero policy proposals? But then, look, I don't know. I, I just don't know if that is the right position to hold here when you have this pretty defined universe of policies that seem to be constraining what a Democrat here's might what, do. Here's what and, I come A thing that, like, we used to have is that governors would do well in presidential campaigns because there was this dichotomy between you don't want it vote for like total blank slates and just be like, I hope this guy does a good job. He's cool at standing on tables. Uh, but you also don't want to just vote for like a stack of white papers that has nothing to do with how the American government actually operates, right? Whereas being governor of a state is a similar kind of job to being president. And you can try to take a holistic look at a state governor and say like, did he make progress on certain kinds of key goals, right? And like what things did he make progress on or did things get worse? And like do I all in all like this guy and like his approach, right? 
I think it's unfortunate that like that trend has kind of gone away, right? That when you looked at, you know, George W. Bush or Rick Perry, you could say, what's going on with Texas, right? And you could say, well, Texas is a very pro-business governance regime. Texas also appears to, unlike some conservative states, have a fairly effective small state, right, in the sense that like its school system produces okay results, even though it's very scantily funded. And you get the whole thing, right? It's like, are they serious about clamping down on pollution? Like, no, right? Do they manage to get roads built despite aversion to taxes? Like, yes, yes. they're big roads. You know, so you can actually just look at it, right? Instead of like subjecting the people to like some kind of crazy inquisition, you can interrogate a real record. And what's frustrating, whether these are people who've been on Capitol Hill since like dinosaurs roamed the earth or a guy who served three terms in the house and didn't do anything, is like you you can't actually assess them as governing entities. And so I find that hard to think about. I mean, I also I, I don't want to end the episode without saying it seems like there's definitely like a gendered element to this as well. It is very, very hard for me to see a woman running in this primary, like a three term congresswoman who had no <laughs> policy positions at all and her having this like massive yes. grassroots fundraising effort where it's like it seems like there's such an onus on female candidates like like Warren to have this like thick binder of policy positions to be taken as a credible candidate where it's like, look, I have all these ideas. I mean, it's a a bit of damned if you do, damned if you don't, where it seems like Elizabeth Warren, much like Clinton, is running into these criticisms of she's too prepared and she's too bookish and she's just in the weeds and she's not on tabletops because it's hard to get on a table when you're wearing Exactly. There was a recent thing I saw on Twitter where people were like, oh, you know, wouldn't it be so great if Warren and Kamala Harris spoke without notes and stood on a table? And people pointed out, like, they do often speak without notes. And also, like— Getting on a table and on a countertop to do anything has a very different – there's a very different lens on it for women. Right. And I think it is frustrating to me that, like, maybe it's true that the policy positions you run on, like, actually, you know, you're not going to be wedded to them. There's so many things that change once you end up in the machinery of Washington. But it's essentially off limits to female candidates to run that campaign at this point. You You know, that they could not run the Beto campaign and still be – successful, um, that they're kind of stuck on the, like, policy side of this. Yes. That's it. I mean, it's not totally clear that Beto's campaign is successful. Um, But yes, I agree with this. I think that this is probably the actual thing that is going on with Beto is that to a million American women, this is the very essence of the brash less qualified man trying to elbow away right like he literally from a big promotion because he's just like he is literally physically larger than they are and he right? took he took a plan written by two of his female colleagues at the house and said oh this is my medicare for all plan yes. and at some point like in our internal slack we were like oh should we call that beto's plan i was like absolutely not like he did not write this he just found this plan he said he liked it you know to jan schakowsky and rosa delora the people who actually wrote it to long-serving house members veteran legislators veteran legislators you know write this medicare for america policy that he's now endorsed and i don't know I, i don't have like a solution to this but it is incredibly frustrating to me that 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 might be the type of campaign that works better, that might even result in, like, some good policies getting passed, but it's a type of campaign that I think a woman would really struggle to run I mean, this is exactly Barack Obama's 2008. Yes. And we're, now we're just relitigating 2008. Yeah, right? No, no, I know. But, I mean, but uh, you wrote about this on Vox, right? But, like, you you were on the opposite side oh, of, yeah. of that at that time, right? I was. I was young. And, I mean, I think it is— True, right? That it's like the the presidency, I think not just in the sense that like we have male-coded expectations for who should be president, but that like the presidency as an institution is this very because it combines head of government, head of state roles, is this very male-coded type thing, right? Like it's um it's not collaborative. You don't ascend to it through experience the way like becoming speaker of the house, right? Like Nancy Pelosi is the first woman to become Speaker of the House, but every previous Speaker of the House had been in Congress for a while, had served in secondary leadership positions before becoming Speaker, right? It's like it's like a climb the ladder kind of job. And the presidency, 
Or if he looks up heads of states, another co- yes. like more parliamentary yes, system. Exactly. Right. You're elected by your colleagues, yes. right? So they put you forward because they like you. You work well with them. They trust you to mediate their disputes. Like almost every president is this like crazy line jumper, right? It's like Republicans are like, uh, we're tired of losing every election. Like, let's get uh General Eisenhower, yeah. um, Donald Trump from the TV show, right? Like, it's really weird. And they're, and they're like, almost all like that, with the exception of the occasional George H.W. Bush, like, dutiful vice president kind of comes up. You know, we've seen these conversations recently. Like, when I spoke uh, with Governor Jay Inslee, he talked a lot about, like, the need to abolish the filibuster and how that was something, like, he really wanted to focus on that in our conversation. Now, Abolishing the filibuster is something that both Barack Obama and Donald Trump have expressed interest in, but they cannot do it. That is the job for Congress. And it's interesting to see these policy discussions being not so much foisted upon presidential candidates, but presidential candidates really taking them on. It was like, this is something and I'm like, but I'm more interested in like, okay, how would you get Congress to do this? But it, it is interesting to see this strange moment of presidential candidates being reflective, not of just themselves in some ways, but of like an entire world of policy or like what them becoming representative of that policy, policy that they could not necessarily get passed into law, even if they were to win the White House. Yes, that is true. I think that's like a better question to ask about better work, right? It's like, what has he actually done? Right. In his career in politics, like what are his big achievements? Right. And you don't always, you know, uh, there's something to be said for like electing a younger president who necessarily won't have done as much stuff. But like, did you do something that was impressive for a sophomore House member as a sophomore House member? Or like, are you just tall and you used to be in a band? Right. Because like those are very different things. Right. There's like there's like having a short resume and then there's like not really having done any. And what gave yeah. me pause about Beto is that it could be like the latter rather than the former. Right. I don't know. It feels very unpredictable. I think that is like one of the things like I as a host of this podcast, like I want to evaluate people by their policy positions and like use that as a good, solid, like smart person metric to figure out like who would be best at leading this country. I don't think there's great. And, you know, if you know this research, please share it in the Weeds Facebook group. I don't know that there's a strong body of research tethering what people are running on and, like, their amount of policy expertise on this, like, Iglesias, um, you know, Weeds plot. I mean, the idea he um, stole from Schakowsky and Delora is pretty good. Yeah, Medicare for America, very interesting healthcare plan, kind of a nice middle ground between Obamacare and Medicare for all. I just don't know there's great – it is frustrating to me that, like, I, I want to, like, use all these policy positions. I don't know that there's actually great research to suggest that, like, that is going to be a good way for me to, like, help the country pick a president. I think finding ways to take credit for women's hard work is a classic uh, way to get ahead in American life and that, you know, if you are effective at it, you could really go places really? in this country. Yeah. Yeah, so, standing on standing on the shoulders of women and countertops, the Beto O'Rourke campaign. <laughs> exactly. Speaking of which, I will be off uh, on Tuesday, so we're going to have uh, Sarah, Jane, and Dara uh, podcasting. All just taking credit for each other's ideas. It's going to be— <laughs> Who's going to take credit for your work? <laughs> it's going to be a disaster. Um, <laughs> no, I'm sure it'll be fine. Um, <laughs> I, I feel so reassured, Matt. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, so we'll um, have long-awaited Lady Weeds on yeah, Tuesday. Exactly. Yeah, come into the into the Weeds Facebook group. Uh, tell us what you think about all this, uh, whose ideas you think deserve to be stolen, uh, et cetera. Um, thanks to everybody out there for listening. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. The Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Tuesday.